If you have a Bible, which you may not because of the circumstances, let's go to Romans chapter 3. I'm staying with Romans 3, uh, 27 to 31, one more Sunday because the relevance of it for what we're doing this morning is so amazing. And so it won't be hard for you to see why I chose to linger here one more Sunday on this text as we make our way through Romans. If you're visiting with us and you wonder what we're doing in the messages on Sunday morning, we're making our way through the book of Romans, and we've been doing this now for a little over a year, and we're at uh, the end of chapter 3, and I'm going to read Romans 3, 27 to 31. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles, of the nations also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Father, as we undertake once more to look at these verses and apply them to what we're about in this praise march this morning, I ask you to draw near. I ask you, just like this wind is beautifully and comfortably blowing over us to blow by your Holy Spirit across our hearts. And may your words sink in and take root. May people be drawn to faith in Jesus Christ this morning by the lyrics of the songs and the prayers that are prayed and the preaching that is preached. And so may Christ be exalted in our midst. I pray for your help that I might unfold these words faithfully. And I pray that you would Assemble now everything that needs to be put together in these next moments so that when we go to the streets in about an hour, we will be ready in body and spirit, soul, mind, in every way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to focus on verses 29 and 30. This is a public declaration that we're making this morning now of... The truth of God and the value of Jesus Christ to us. And so I want to put some foundations under it that are in this text so that uh, when you go to the streets, you'll have a clear idea in your mind. Why am I doing this? Am I just doing this because they invited us to come or because I like the music or because it's fun to be marching? Or is there some solid theological, biblical foundation under what we're doing here? And I think I can develop that for you out of these verses 29 and 30 from Romans 3. Let me read them for you once more, just those two verses. Or is God the God of the Jews only? He is not the God. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since, indeed, God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So there are three steps now to the argument for why we're going to go to the streets in a few minutes. 
And let me develop them in reverse order than, than I see them in this text and build one on the other. Here's number one. God is one. Number two. Therefore, he has one way for all the nations to get right with him, namely justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Three, therefore, he is not the God of the Jews only. He is the God of the nations. He is the God of everyone we'll see. He is the God of everybody that we will run into, every religion and every ethnic minority or majority. He is God. So those are the three. Let me take them one at a time and show you from this text how they unfold. Verse 30. God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Now, what does that mean? God is one. There's several implications that I see in that phrase, God is one. Here's the first one. It means there is one true God. That's the way the NIV translates it. There is one true and living God. This simply has to be the case, given the definition of God that the Apostle Paul unfolds for us in the book of Romans. Let me read you one key verse about the nature of God that implies there is only one of him. Romans 11.36 All things were from him and through him and to him, to him be glory forever and ever. Now think about that for a moment. What that means is God is the ultimate source of everything except God. Now that necessarily implies that there's only one God. Because if there were two gods and they were both ultimate, one of them couldn't be God because he wouldn't be the ultimate source of the other. So by definition, he wouldn't be God. God is the ultimate source of everything but God. Therefore, God has to be one and the only God. Everything comes from him. Nothing can be more ultimate from God and therefore, there can only be one of God. Now, that's relevant for us in this situation today where we find ourselves. Um, you're going to receive in the park, I believe, and next Sunday morning, the booklet form of the evangelistic plans that you had for the summer. I opened it to find my name to see if they got right what I put on my sheet, and they did. God is already answering my prayers. One of the things that I put on my plans for evangelism this summer was that in all my travels, and, and I'm doing a lot of that, I'm going to pray that the Lord would make me alert to occasions where I can share the gospel. So, I went to Vancouver on Monday. Get off the plane in Vancouver, I gotta get to the ferry, I'm told. You gotta take a ferry to Vancouver Island to get to, uh, Parksville on the island. 
takes as long to get from here to Parksville as it does from here to London. Just because you have to ride the plane, take a taxi, ride the ferry, get another car. So I took a taxi from the airport in Vancouver to the ferry, which is a 30-minute drive. And as I got in the taxi, I'm praying, Lord, I got 30 minutes alone with this man. Help me. Well, did he ever open it up? Because the man was a Sikh from Punjab in North Africa. Now, Sikhs are a little bit like Muslims and a little bit like Hindus. They are monotheists. And so uh, he said, uh, where do you want to go? And his English was almost indiscernible. I could hardly understand him. But I said, I'm going to be picked up near the ferry at uh, South Delta Baptist Church. <laughs> <laughs> well, that ever a great lead-in. Church, you're going to a church. Why are you going to a church? Do you believe in God? And he was doing all the questions. And for 30 minutes, I shared the gospel with this man, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and the oneness that there is in God. And I discovered, as we will discover all over this neighborhood, with Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs and secularists and atheists and agnostics and every other brand of human being and religion, we will find that the uniqueness of God is mightily disagreed with and mightily opposed in various ways. He wanted to be real happy that I had my God, a Baptist God as far as he was concerned, and he had his Sikh God, and as long as I was a nice man and a nice person, that's all he cared about. And I kept coming back to Jesus Christ and coming back to Jesus Christ. All that mattered to him was, you can have your God, I got my God, just be a nice person. Now when we hit the streets here, we're going to pass those kinds of people. They're going to be Muslims that listen to us, Hindus, there's a Hindu family just around the block over here. I watch their little kids catch the bus every morning when I used to jog over this way, try to talk to the dad. There's going to be animists, American animists, and every other kind of person like that. Therefore, it makes a big difference whether we buy into Paul's statement here, there is one God or God is one. Now, here's an, here's an implication of that, another implication. When Paul says that God is one... He doesn't just mean there is one God only, one true God. He means this true God has a oneness about him. That is, he has coherence. He doesn't reveal himself in one personality over here and then go over to this culture and reveal himself in a contradictory personality. He doesn't reveal himself over here with attributes to one group of people, then go over here on the other side of the globe and reveal himself with another set of contradictory attributes. There's a coherence and a unity in God. And he's a God of sovereignty, a God of grace and his wrath and his justice and his wisdom and his mercy all cohere in one great unified God. Now, that's very important because we live in an incredibly pluralistic society and it is becoming more so and more so. And those of us who believe in the Jesus Christ of the first century should not be too worried about this. 
I mean, sometimes Americans who have a memory span of about two centuries say, oh, dear, oh, dear, look, our dear America that began with the Puritans has just gone to the dogs, and there's all kinds of religions here, and there's all kinds of beliefs here, and there's all kinds of pluralism here. How will we ever triumph? What a naive thing to say. In the first century, it was vastly more pluralistic than it is now. It was vastly more debauched than it is now. The numbers of Christians were far teenier than they are now. And because they were willing to lay down their lives for this great Christ, they did unbelievable exploit, exploits for God among the nations. But we got to get this very clear. Our conscience has to be very clear on this. There's a lot of Christians who, because of the sophisticated articulation of the rightness of pluralism, have lost their theological nerve and do not ever open their mouths lest they encounter the criticism of arrogance and presumption and offensiveness by saying Jesus Christ is the only way to glory and to heaven. That is a big issue for us as we march and as we go to work tomorrow morning. So I want us to get some things clear here. And here's a couple of things I want us to get clear. Number one, because we believe in one God who has a coherent personality about him and one way of salvation through Jesus Christ alone and faith in him for every people group in the world, our faith is very threatening to spiritual or to religious pluralism. It's going to be felt as threatening. And this may not sound coherent to you, but I'll try to fix it. It is also, for the very same reason, a political support and defense of Religious pluralism. It is a spiritual threat to religious pluralism in America, and it is a political defense and support of religious pluralism in America and in all the cities of the world. I know a man named Vishal Mangalwadi. Some of you know Vishal, who's from India, who comes back over and ministers at the university from time to time, has written several books to try to argue that Christianity is the only hope for the pluralism in India. Not because it will make everybody Christian, because it will put the only kind of foundation under pluralism that will keep people from slaughtering each other. Now let me develop that for just a minute, because I want you to feel both of these things, because you need to, at work tomorrow, or whenever you have the courage to open your mouth, and declare Jesus Christ as the only way, you need to be able to say, yes, I know that when I say Jesus Christ is the only way, you feel that your religion is threatened. And it is spiritually threatened. But I want you to know that my commitment to Jesus Christ and His way also puts a foundation underneath the very pluralism that keeps me from ever attacking you. And the reason is this. Jesus Christ's kingdom, according to John 18, is not of this world. And therefore, the only way of salvation is a way of faith, not a way of coercion, not a way of force, not a way of bombs, not a way of swords, not a way of guns. 
We will never, if we are truly Christian, endorse a Jewish pogrom or ethnic cleansing or any kind of hostilities against Hindus. The gospel of Jesus Christ spreads by proclamation, spreads by prayer, spreads by persuasion, spreads by love and service, spreads by being persecuted rather than persecuting. Anybody that undertakes to defend and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ by means of the sword or the gun or the jail has departed from true Christianity, at least at that point. And therefore, it is the very message of the uniqueness of the Son of God that comes underneath religious pluralism. And while attacking it at the spiritual level with tears and persuasions, trying to get people to believe in the living God and leave a false religion, defends and supports their rights to believe that religion rather than being attacked with guns or swords in order to bring them over to our religion. There is no bringing of people over to Christianity any other way than by a free and voluntary persuasion through prayer and preaching and the Holy Spirit. So there are two things we need to get very clear about religious pluralism over against the oneness of God and the oneness of His personality and the oneness of His way of salvation. And that is, it is a spiritual threat to pluralism, which means you are going to be criticized big time to be a Christian in America. There's an article in, was it World, past week or so, that said, if and when persecution comes in America, it will be in the name of pluralism, not because of the departure from pluralism. Because we are the one religion that threatens pluralism at the preaching level, the persuasion level, the prayer level. When we hit the streets here, we are going to be praying that people be converted from Muslims, converted from Hindus, converted from agnosticism, converted from New Age. That's the way we pray. That's the way we preach. You may call that offensiveness, presumption, and arrogance. There is another name for it. It is love. Of course, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinners and is the only way to glory, you will be so embarrassed, you will be so hesitant, you'll be so fearful that you will never call that love. You will let people dictate for you what it is, namely, it's arrogance, it's presumption, it's offensive, but it's not love. Love says, leave me alone. That is not what love says. The gospel undermines pluralism spiritually the way antibiotics undermines the pluralism of infectious bacterial diseases all over the world. That's the way the gospel undermines pluralism. It doesn't undermine it with guns or swords or bombs, and we need to make that very, very clear. So let's go to the streets with love. Let's go to the streets with persuasion. Let's go to the streets with prayer. That's my first step. There is one God, one in his being, one in his personality, and one in now his way of saving people. 
Verse 30 again. Since indeed God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. The second point I want to make is the oneness of God implies a, implies a oneness of the way of salvation, which we have learned from the first three chapters of Romans is the way of faith in Jesus Christ alone for all kinds of people, both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. The gospel of Jesus Christ that we're going to declare in a few minutes in streets is a declaration of amnesty to all the religions of the world, to all the religious forms that people have and to all the rejections of religion. God declares amnesty. He has made a truce and waved a flag at the cross to say, I am averting my wrath from those who oppose me. Come, lay down your arms of rebellion and I will adopt you into my family, include you in my people, give you eternal life, take away all my wrath from you and all your guilt from you. That's the one gospel that's been presented from this one God and the way it's received is by faith and faith is crucial because it cuts across the lines of circumcised and uncircumcised. Now, what do those two words stand for here? How does that relate to this neighborhood, Elliott Park and Phillips, that we're going to be walking through? Circumcision, I would broaden out and say, stands for anybody who thinks they have some ethnic or religious trait that will commend them to God. And he says... We believe that people are justified by faith apart from that. So if there's anybody that believes this morning that you have something in and of yourself, your color, your intelligence, your personality, your parents, your church membership, your education, anything, that's in the category of circumcision. And Paul says the one way of salvation moves apart from that and is by justification through faith. What does uncircumcision stand for? It stands for the people, and maybe we'll pass more of these. I don't know. My guess is it'll be a mixture of both kinds because we're really all both kinds. It stands for the people who think, I don't have anything to commend me to God. I'm not a Jew, not the right religion, not the right socioeconomic class, not the right education. Christianity is for the, the, the upper cut of society. It's not for the poor or whatever. Anything that a person thinks, I lack this to commend me to God, Paul says now in verse 30, we reckon that a man is justified not only by faith, not circumcision, but by faith, not uncircumcision. So having advantages is no advantage, and having no advantage is no disadvantage. Because justification, getting right with God, is by faith alone. And faith is not one of those things. 
Faith is in a class by itself. It is that unique work of God in the heart by which we find ourselves seeing the glory and the beauty and the truth of the gospel and being drawn out to it like a person who loves hot fudge sundaes is drawn to the Dairy Queen after this service, which is just right over there on 11th Avenue and will probably still be open. It doesn't feel like a work when somebody hands you a big, cool glass of lemonade when you forgot to bring your water bottle. See there, Sarah, she brought hers. It, it doesn't, it feels like, take a drink, take a drink. God says, this is the condition for not dying of thirst. Drink. And you say, really? Just drink? No money? No work? Just drink? He says, drink. Come to me, all you who are thirsty, and drink. Faith is in a class by itself. And we want to declare to these people, it doesn't matter what disadvantages you bring. It doesn't matter how much crime, how much crack. How many babies you had out of wedlock. That is not the issue. The issue is faith in Jesus Christ now. Will you trust him? Will you treasure him as your life, as your hope? And he'll get to work on the other things in due season. So that's the second point. And now we move to the third and last. If there's one God, he's unique, has a coherency and a unity about himself, so there's no other God. And if there is one way of salvation, namely justification by grace, apart from circumcision and those advantages and uncircumcision and those disadvantages, then verse 29 draws this conclusion. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles? And you know that Gentiles can be translated Nations, the God of the nations. Answer, yes, of the nations also. So here we're going to go now. And let this be ringing, let this truth be ringing from Romans 3.30. God is the God of the nations. God is the God of the nations. What does that mean? Four sentences. Let me just give you four sentences. Number one. It means he made the nations. Acts 17, 26, he made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Therefore, every ethnic diversity that we will see and that exists out here in this little teeny microcosm of humanity, every ethnic distinction and difference is a God thing. It's a God wrought thing. Beware of your prejudices. Go to God for the love that God has for the nations. Every shade of color, every shape of face, every height, every kind of hair is a God thing. And beware of prejudices that every one of us has. Crucify them and turn to the living God and say, oh God, Show me your eyes for this diversity. Second thing it means is that he intends to redeem somebody from every one of these ethnic groups. Revelation 5.9, they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased men for God from 
every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. There's not a nation, there's not a people, there's not a tongue, there's not a tribe from which God does not mean to win people for himself, for the heavenly worship. And therefore, beware of looking upon any group as outside the reach of this glorious gospel, because God says nobody is outside the reach. Number three, it means when we say God is the God of the nations, that he is ready to justify anyone who has faith in Jesus. He has made one way that everybody who can thirst and drink is qualified for. And number four, finally, God is the God of the nation means he aims to be known by all the nations. Psalm 96, 1-4, O oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Declare his glory among the nations, his mighty works among all the peoples. That's the reason we're leaving. Declare his glory among the nations. How do you do that? Tell me, if this is in the Bible and it says declare his glory among the nations, how are you going to do it? We've given you one way. And it's going to start in five minutes. What I'd like to do to move there is everybody take your yellow folder again. Would you take this? And I want us to, with all our might, go to page one. Everybody looking at the same page. Okay, we're going to read this together. Here we go. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among the peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. 